Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. What is it that we do every single week? We're reading books. We're giving you the facts. We're also giving you some opinion. Sometimes it's not going to be nice. Sometimes it's going to be a little bit skeptical, a little bit judgmental. And you know what? I've seen you guys in the tweets. Don't be afraid to say it. Call it like you see it. A little bit bitchy. We claim bitchy. We've reclaimed the word. If that's not something you're interested in, by all means, I respect and understand that and adore you for it. I wish you nothing but light and well. I wish you fall in a well, but then find the light. (laughs) Yeah, I hope you find the light at the end of the well tunnel and never get to it. And you die there alone with no content. And you could have had content, but you no, I'm kidding. I hope (laughs) you have a great life and just get the fuck out of mine. Here's what I am. I'm a downer. I'm a bitch. I'm going to talk shit. And if that's not what you want in your life, I respect it, but go somewhere else. Yeah, and I'm an upper. I want to talk shit in a way that is positive and exciting. I think some people deserve to be shit talked. You like to talk shit in an upper register. You hit a high note with your low blows. In today's line of blow, I want to talk about a review that we got this week. Sure, hit me. We received a review about our Caitlyn Jenner episode that let us know that we do in fact have Republican listeners and we have come across narrow-minded in the way that we have suggested that they do not support the LGBTQ plus community. Specifically in regards to trans lives. So those people who feel offended by the way we've discussed Republicans, I would like to say, good. You should be offended. You support a party that is actively working against people's rights to exist comfortably or at all in our society. And I don't think that that is right. They wrote that it is a false statement and we need to do our research on like the Republican history of supporting the LGBTQ community. I don't give a fuck about the history. I give a fuck about what's happening now, which is active oppression. There have been more anti trans laws written this year than I guess ever before. I found some research. I did my research. Say it ain't true. (laughs) This is the worst year in The history of rolling back trans rights, it is very dangerous for them in a lot of different places, and you have voted for that. So I don't want you to feel comfortable here. This is not a political podcast, but when it does come up and when it is important, I do want you to know that this is not a safe space to come and have fun and listen to a fun, chatty conversation where you're allowed to forget that you've voted to hurt people. I think it's really important that you remember that whatever interests you're voting in favor of, like I guess your financial interests are a lot more important to you than women's rights to have a say over their bodies, than trans people's rights to live their lives the way that they deserve to. I think that the fact that you think you're little property taxes are more important than that is really embarrassing. And I hope that you feel that a little bit more often. Okay. (laughs) I don't think that you deserve fun, guilt-free entertainment. I think you do a lot of really bad things and I don't think that we're friends. But if you like us and you want to leave a five-star review, I'll be thanking our five-star reviewers at the end of this podcast. And then also a little bit of housekeeping up top. You guys, November 17th. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, if you're listening on Tuesday, we are starting our weekly comedy show. The thing is, the bar doesn't trust us. They don't think that we have the following we claim we have. So we need people to show up so that we pack out this bar, have a great comedy show. We have a hilarious lineup for you guys. Yes. So November 17th at Nikki's Unisex in Williamsburg. No tickets required. Just show up, hang out. We are going to party after the show. You're going to party before the show. You're going to have an amazing time during the show. Doors at 7, show at 7.30. It'll be so fun. So make sure you show up like closer to 7 so you can make sure you've settled a spot. So we'll see you tomorrow, you guys. Claire. Yes. If you were to write a memoir, what would you title this week's chapter? I can't believe I've become what I fear. 
What have you become? My parents. No. <laughs> what happened? So I got me and Mac tickets to go see his favorite basketball team play in Philly. We took the Mecca bus down and had like six hours to kill in the city of Philadelphia. There's a lot to see there. Yeah. And the first thing we fucking saw right when we got off the mega bus, the Liberty Bell. And I just casually go, oh, I think that's the Liberty Bell. And Mac was like, maybe we should go see it. And I was like, I've actually already seen it. It's literally just a bell. <laughs> and he's like, well, what's the history? And I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't matter. And he's like, we should go. And then we go and there was a line. And I was like, okay, well, there's a line. And he's like, well, we should wait in it. The history of the Liberty Bell. Do you know it? Do you know it? Yeah. It's the first big bell that they broke. It's a broke bell. <laughs> Nobody had ever seen a bell so big broken before. So they framed it. We waited in line for 20 minutes. First, you go through this little bell museum where they just show <laughs> you like bell memorabilia. Memorabilia. They're like, here's a room full of a lot of bells. And they're like, here's somebody who took a bell and made it other bells. So mostly the bell is a symbol. And they're like, here's these other people who loved the idea of the symbol. And you're like, okay, so I'm seeing the symbol in real life. And so then finally you get to the end of the Bell Museum. And there it is. It's just a bell that was broken. And then you leave. I saw this when I was seven. I knew it was dumb then. We're back again. Here's what I can say about the Liberty Bell. Don't say you never learned anything from this podcast. It was a bell that existed around the time of the Declaration of Independence. Okay. And they don't know how it broke. And then when they try to fix it, they broke it worse. And so now here it is. Interesting. How did this happen to me? How am I young, full of joie de vivre, beautiful, supple skin, a few grays, sure, but that has nothing to do with age. I think that has to do with protein intake. <laughs> how am I back at the Liberty Bell already? I shouldn't have to be here until I have kids that I hate and I <laughs> want to torture on a terrible weekend. Ashley, if you had a memoir, what would this week be chaptered? This week would be chaptered, I guess we're doing it again. I know that I really, I'm a broken record on this. I guess there's just not that much going on in my life. I'm back in the dating game. I kind of was taking a break from actively doing much actual dating. I was just kind of like, whatever happens will happen. Then I did a comedy show a couple of weeks ago where someone from Hinge was in the audience and they insisted on upgrading my profile to the paid version. And I'd always heard from TikTok and conspiracy theorists that Hinge is like a garbage dump unless you're doing the paid version, which really checked out with my experience of never having done the paid version and only having a garbage dump experience. So she upgraded me. I didn't think anything would come of it. And it is like a candy store. I'm just like, okay, there are hot people out there. And I have a lot of dates coming up where I'm just like, I'm actually a little too busy to be doing this, but it is also kind of fun. And so I guess I'll keep you guys posted. Ashley. Yes, Claire. Before this week, what did you know about the man, the myth, the rapper, the hustler, Gucci Mane? I knew that Gucci Mane had an ice cream cone tattooed on his noggin, cheek side. I knew that I was very into the song Lemonade and a couple other Gucci hits, but I did not really know any deep cuts. And the other thing I knew is that I don't know what it's called when rappers have like a little tag at the beginning of a song to let you know who's on it. And I know that he always says it's Gucci, but it sounds like Scoochie. And it always made me laugh a little bit when he goes, Scoochie. <laughs> Claire, what did you know about Gucci Mane? I did not know literally a damn thing about Gucci Mane. Not even the face tattoo? No, Max said, oh, he has the face tattoo of the ice cream cone. And I go, no, he doesn't. And then sure enough, I got to the part of the book. I go, up, oh, up. Oh, and he got that necklace tattooed on his face. Are you ready to get into this book, The Autobiography of Gucci Mane? What's up, buddy? Yellow everything this time, you know what I'm Yellow rims, yellow big booty, yellow bones. Yellow rims, yellow MPs, yellow watch, yellow charm, yellow chain, yellow. 
smoke some weed in my gun. Look at this motor knocking because it is a lemma. My life on Georgia beaches makes you look more like a lemma. Kuji Maine was born Roderick Davis on February 12th, 1980. And this book ultimately was written in 2016 from jail and released in 2017. So he was 36 when he wrote it. Okay. This is one of the best ghost writers I think we've read. I would read more from Neil Martinez Belkin, who was the co-writer on this book. It really feels like Gucci gave him a lot to work with. And then he created a really good narrative through it. The voice of this book really felt like you were knowing the man and not just the events. So let's get into it. Despite being a staple of the Atlanta rap scene, Gucci Mane is not originally from Atlanta. He was born and spent the first several years of his life in Alabama. He grew up in a family where he was mostly raised by his mother, his maternal grandfather, and his paternal grandmother. His two parents were from the same small town in Alabama. His father was on the run at the time of his birth in Detroit. His father had always been kind of a grifter, and so he was wanted at the time, and he fled to Detroit and wasn't around for a while. He has an older brother who's about six or seven years older than him that was from a mother's previous relationship. He was a smart boy. It sounds like he was doing really well in school. He knew how to read before everybody else. He like was obsessed with his brother. He loved music. He just sounds like a cute, regular little kid. He loved his grandpa. His grandfather would come back from church every Sunday. And they had like this little routine where when he saw him coming up the block, he'd like run up to his grandpa. And his grandpa would pretend to have a limp so that Gucci could help him walk down the street. <laughs> but then unfortunately, when he was seven years old, his grandfather died of a heart attack. In his family, there's a lot of drug and alcohol addiction. His grandfather was a real drinker, just like his grandmother, just like most of the people in his family, honestly. And his grandfather had a heart attack and died when he was like 49. His grandparents definitely had a bit of a chaotic relationship. He was like, my grandma was a real spark plug. She tried to stab my grandpa with a fork one time. He's like, there's a rumor my grandma shot my grandpa one time. A rumor? <laughs> yeah, this feels like that would be something that would have a lot of evidence left over. Like the bullet hole. So when he was seven years old, his grandfather passed away from a heart attack. And at this point, Having a man leading the house, unfortunately, kept a lot of order. And when there was this power vacuum, his mom and his aunts had this huge power struggle of who got the house, who was in charge, what was going on. And the mom felt it was best to just leave and go move to Atlanta. And so his mom started dating this man who was like, I'm going to move to Atlanta. You can move in with me. He was a really nice man. Roderick, his brother, and his mom all move with this man. The man who was separated from his wife at the time reconnects with his wife and so his wife and his son move back into the house and Gucci's like yeah the new wife really didn't like that me and my brother and my mom were all still living there in that house because the man was such a good guy he didn't kick us right out but it became pretty quickly apparent that we had to go the wife was really mean and I'm like well that's fucked up but I do understand that if you move back in with your husband and the father of your child and he still has his last girlfriend and her two kids living in the house that is tight quarters I get it so he moves to Atlanta and it turns out his dad had been there the whole time. Then finally, she's able to reconnect with the dad and they move in with the dad for a while. She calls the dad out of pure desperation. She's like, we cannot stay with this guy and his wife and their kid. I need somewhere to go. She didn't really have money. She didn't have a place to go. So she ends up calling the dad and Gucci is like, he just leapt up and came right over. He was so excited to come see us. He couldn't wait to see us. It had been my mama who hadn't wanted him around. It's such a classic quote. It really follows the theme of almost every memoir we've read. Which is, if you're a father who abandons your child, they will still be more mad at their mom than at you. It's not that the mama didn't want the dad around. The dad had never been there since the day of Roderick's birth. And suddenly they were so desperate they had to go back. And all Roderick can think is, why did you keep him away from me? But it wasn't that the mom was keeping the dad away. 
Right. It was that the dad was away. Moving to Atlanta and moving out on their own after they left that guy's house created this thing that we've also seen in a handful of books of this financial fear instilled in children. Hearing parents not know when rent is going to be paid is really stressful. And he had this fear that became really ingrained in his personality of never having enough money basically ever again. And he starts talking about Atlanta and what Atlanta was like at this point. It is the late 80s, early 90s. Atlanta really wanted to win the 96 games, the Olympic games. And this is such an interesting tidbit about the politics and how these large scale events can affect everybody to a personal level. We've seen for the most part, hosting the Olympics is really bad for most cities. It gives you this brief economic tourism boom. And then the fallout is always bad. Atlanta needed the Olympics. So as part of the efforts to downplay the city's dark underbelly, the police department started underreporting crime. Violent crimes were downgraded to misdemeanors and other police reports were being thrown away altogether. This went on for years. And then he goes, but enough playing dope game historian because I didn't know about any of that shit then. I was 10 years old. All I knew was that my neighborhood was fucking drug zone six. So he lives in this place called zone six and there's just a ton of drugs. The exact word he uses a couple of times is that the area was infested with drugs. And I think that that's a really interesting use of words because it really shows that there's no way to outrun it and there's no way to not get involved in the game. Think about if there's bed bugs. If your apartment is infested with bed bugs, the amount of work that you have to do to keep that from getting in is so astronomical. It just gets there. He grows up. His dad is like a grifter. He makes his money by playing three card molly, pigeon drop, shaking the pee, all sorts of trickery and bullshit. And he says at first he was making a lot of money because it was new to the scene. But after a year or two... Nobody was buying it anymore. Nobody was falling for it. And also his dad was such an alcoholic that he would just start drinking in the morning. By the time he would come back, he'd be like passing out. Nobody would fall for the shit that my dad was doing because he was just so drunk. But it really instilled in Gucci this hustling people mentality. He says, that was my father and me, always looking for the angle, always thinking about what move I can pull to my advantage, however small that move might be. So when he first starts selling drugs, he's figuring out ways to fleece people to turn $120 into $160. There's all these tiny moves where he's just bringing home an extra 20, 30 bucks, but it just adds up over time. And this starts young. So he starts selling drugs Christmas time of seventh grade. Yes. And it's because he has no money at home. They had moved school districts when he left that married guy's house, but they had gotten to stay in this kind of like working class school district. But he was now living the projects in zone six. He was like, I knew I was going to go back to school and everybody was going to have new shoes, new shirt, new everything from Christmas. And my mom straight up told me, we don't have money for anything. Here's $50. That's all I can give you. And he was like, I didn't want to be the only person to go back to school with nothing new. So I took my $50 And I started selling drugs. And at first he was working for his older brother. So his older brother is about six years older than him. And he wanted to be a football player. So he was kind of on the straight and narrow. He had a job as a cashier at a grocery store. It seems like he stayed out of trouble, really. He was basically his older brother's henchman. So he would get $20 for every $100 of weed that he sold on behalf of his brother. And this is when he started pinching from bags so that he would sell an extra 11th bag out of the 10 dime bags and make another $40 on top of it. And this was at 12, 13 years old. He's already like scheming like that. By eighth grade, he starts taking the money and just decides to turn to crack. So he starts selling crack in eighth grade. But he doesn't start doing drugs for quite a while. He's selling at crack houses. His main plug is this woman. Her name's like Miss K or something. And she runs basically a crack house. And he gives her free stuff. She lets him sell to all of the people who live there. And so he was like, it was so disgusting and grimy and horrible that it turned me off hard drugs forever. For years, I never wanted to do any drugs because I associated drug use with how I saw those people in that crack den. Another entrepreneurial move he made was adjusting the standard sizes. 
He started selling $3 bags, which was really rare. But when you're a drug addict and you're just trying to get a fix, that $3 bag is really convenient. (laughs) He was like playing into the way drug users need drugs. He has a business mind. And that's something that comes from the time he was a child. So he's selling drugs all through high school and he's starting to make a lot of money. I think his mom sort of knew what was going on, but he did his best to lie to her. And he did a pretty decent job of covering for himself for a really long time. And it was just a money-making thing. He just wanted to be rich. He wanted to be able to dress well. He wanted to get the things he wanted and not worry about money. Trapping had been nothing but fun for me since day one. I felt cool. I was making money and I'd never had problems with the law, but the dope game stopped being a game the day I got robbed. So this is when he really is initiated into this world before he'd just been happy-go-lucky drug dealer. Even when he has a gun to his head. He's like, I had $400 worth of dope tucked in my ass crack. But even with that big (laughs) pistol in my face, my only thought was the consequences of giving up my stash. So he gave him the cash in his pockets, which was $40 in a bag of weed. That's not bad. That's not bad. That's not a bad deal to come away with your own life. But he goes, getting robbed was a turning point. Instead of making me retreat into my shell out of fear, it had the opposite effect. I became super aggressive. I would straighten out my business and everyone was going to know that if you fucked with me, there would be repercussions. Instead of getting scared, it hardened him. And he was like, okay, you have to be the toughest person out here or they will fuck with you. This goes on throughout all of high school. He's making a lot of money and he's like gaining some notoriety, but things get so dangerous and it's just like crazy to see how things escalate, especially when you like you run with groups and stuff. He was part of this like zone six click. A lot of things happen all at once. His dad gets arrested. I think for the last time, we don't really hear from him again. There was a domestic dispute and there have been warrants out for his dad's arrest for years. His drinking had gotten so bad. So his dad ends up getting arrested and they move again to an area called Sun Valley. His drug dealing picks up massively. There's a big territory rivalry obviously I mean with every neighborhood so one thing that he says was also a result of the Olympics and the way that the city was pseudo trying to get clean is that there was one gang who ran the drugs in town and in order to prepare for the Olympics that gang was arrested disbanded disposed of obviously that doesn't do anything so then there was just tons of little gangs all over the town and it becomes much more violent because they're clashing with one another one thing i took from political science is it's better to have one gang run an entire city because that's just a government really <laughs> than to have lots of little gangs because now you're in a fiefdom war he's going to school he's still getting pretty good grades he ends up graduating even though there's a lot of drug tension Throughout the neighborhood, throughout the school, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot going on. He got into a local college with a little bit of a scholarship, but it just didn't interest him that much. So he's like, I'm just not going to go until a year later when his mom is like, if you're not going to school and you're not doing anything, you need to like get the fuck out of my house. So he's like, oh, I'll just go to school. And he never really goes, but he is enrolled in school so that he can still live at home. My schooling would officially come to an end after I got busted at the Texaco. The Texaco was the gas station where they all sold drugs. It was April 2001, my second semester at Georgia Perimeter. Apparently, an undercover cop had been watching me for a few days, and he found the bushes where I was keeping my stash at, a stash of about 90 bags of crack. I was in the gas station when he walked up and flashed his badge. The moment he took his eyes off me to inspect it, I was out the door. I bolted through the backyard of the house. I blew past the tennis courts, leaping from the top basketball court to the bottom one. When my legs gave out, all wobbly, I was like a boxer who took a shot on the chin. I'm down, I'm down, I screamed out. Then they beat the shit out of him, which felt unnecessary. He was down. They lock him up. They throw him in jail. This is his first time going to jail. He is, like we've said, very business-minded, always looking for an opportunity. And around this time, he discovers the music business. He sees kind of a music mogul and is like, that's what I want to do. His entry to music was not being a musician. He wanted to run the music industry. 
the idea of being a rapper, he's like, I would see these guys all the time out on the streets selling their CDs. It was so embarrassing. To me, that was panhandling. I didn't give a fuck if that's what it took to make it in the music business. It wasn't going to be something I did. So he knows this kid who wants to be a rapper and he's like, okay, this is my entry into music moguldom. He meets this producer named Zaytoven and he buys a thousand dollars worth of beats from Zaytoven that he can use to help foster this young talent into being a rapper. So what happens is he's arrested, but he's able to use all of his drug money to pay a pretty good lawyer. He's able to be like, look, he's going to school. Let's wait till the summer. So he's like, all right, I want to find a better way to make money. He finds this guy who wants to be a rapper, starts trying to be his manager, basically, and then gets him all set up with this guy, Zaytoven, who's this kid he'd heard about who's making beats in his parents' basement. Then he has to go and do his time. When he comes back out, the kid was like, oh, yeah, I don't want to be a rapper anymore. I'm pretty bored. And Zaytoven's like, well, why don't you give it a shot? And Gucci is like, me? But here's the thing. Gucci is a poet. A chanteuse. And he like pulls out all these poems he had written in second grade and stuff. He's like, I'd always loved writing poems for my mom. And I'd always had a way with words. I think that that's so funny to be like, me? An aspiring music mogul? I guess I'm really a poet. The thing was, whenever we would record our little ciphers on BP's cassette player, I hated how my voice sounded on playback. I sounded different from my friends. My voice was that of someone from Alabama, not from Atlanta. Not only did I sound so country, but I'd always had something of a speech impediment. He says he was very hesitant, but something kept him coming back to Zay's basement. He really worked at it. He worked on his cadence. He worked on his delivery. He worked on his lyrics. Not only does he have a smart business mind, but he does have a work ethic. And he goes, soon I found myself at Zay's nearly every day. There wasn't a plan. We were just two young men trying to find ourselves in music and in life. And then he makes this claim, which I would like to get into next. We didn't know the fun we were having would give birth to a whole genre and an inspiration to a generation of artists after us. Trap music. So he does claim that he invented trap music. It's very debatable. The term trap music was supposedly coined by the T.I. album trap music. T.I., Zaytoven, a bunch of other producers, Gucci. There's a handful of people in this region at this time who are all doing a really similar thing, and that was trap music. Which one of them invented it? TBD. He definitely helped bring it to the mainstream. and He was part of the first wave. And I do think something that is really important to Gucci himself and then Gucci, the Wikipedia page, is what I'm going to call people's opinion of him, is that he did then foster another generation of it. For those of you who don't know what trap music is, I will give you a little quote. Trap music. To some, it's a subject matter. Stories of serving fiends through burglar bars. To others, it's a style of beat making. Shit, today there's a whole audience of white kids who think trap music is about popping Molly and going to a rave. In a way, it's all those things. But when I think about trap music, I think about those early days in Zay's basement. When I would go over early in the morning after a night spent juging I don't know if I'm saying that right. Jugen. In my neighborhood. When Zay would mix our songs and he didn't even know how to mix, the whole process was crude and unrefined. What we were making wasn't radio ready and definitely not destined for the charts. When I think about trap, I think about something raw. Something that hasn't been diluted. Something with no polish on it. Music that sounds as grimy as the world that it came out of. But the thing about Gucci is his trap music is so fun. I feel like that's the hallmark of a Gucci song is that like he's silly with it. He knows that. He knows that his brand is colorful and fun and exciting. And he talks a lot about being very purposeful in the way that his music is darker. There's drugs, there's violence, but he's not trying to make one of those songs that's like, you don't understand what it's like. He's like, no, you know, you kids out there on the corner, we're all having fun. Him and Zay put out his first body of work called Straight Drop Records Presents Gucci Mane La Flair. Gucci Mane actually comes from his dad. His dad had been known as Gucci Mane, which is the Alabama version of Gucci Man, because he himself had worn a lot of Gucci. Yes. 
people are always called him Lil Gucci or Gucci's son, but he just like took the whole thing because his dad was out of the picture, so why not? I mean, he's so business-minded. He says that instead of just passing out these CDs, he like got them into circulation. By basically tricking people into thinking they were a product worth selling. He would just hand them out to bootleggers and be like, Whatever you make on these, that's a profit you can keep. And they were like, oh, shit, we're getting a good deal. Somebody thought they were getting such a good deal that turned around and the bootleggers sweetened the deal. They printed me a few thousand duplicate copies of Gucci Mane LaFlair and posters for free, which I sold for two or three dollars a pop, all profit. So he took this thing that he was going to give out for free anyway, gave it to these guys. They're like, hey, if you want, you can sell these and keep all the profit. And they're like, wow, thanks. Here's some free stuff that he then took and sold for profit. So he like doubled his profit off of something that was supposed to be a full loss. And then the other thing that's genius about it, the way that he got these people to be pushing his album. It was not just in his neighborhood because he had all these people doing his bidding. He was able to get his CD circulated around all of Georgia. So he had all these other rappers that came from his area. The Zone 6 click. So people he grew up with actually from like the childhood was like OJ the Juice Man. Shoddy Red. We took pride in the fact that we were hustlers first and foremost. We had money and didn't need to sign to some label to get jerked over. Something that really comes out of this is this was music by and for Atlanta. He talks about the way that the music at this time was coming out of all of these different neighborhoods in Atlanta. They were like almost different countries. This Zone 6 click, like that's just a block. But if you were two blocks away, that was a different world. Right. And he's like, it starts in the strip clubs and then it goes up from the strip clubs through to the regular clubs. And then from there, if it got radio play, that was a big deal. But even that made you like the king of Atlanta. But there was this entire ecosystem of rap music that existed in and only Atlanta. And every once in a while, something would break into like Z100 or KTLA or whatever. I'd be really interested in talking to like a music industry person about the way that syndicated radio has wiped out independent artists. There are still local stations, but the way that Z100 and KTLA like syndicate so far and wide, there's no local DJ picking music anymore. Only 20 or 30 years ago. That disc jockey had so much control over what could become big. Less than, I guess we are kind of old. Never mind. So here's the thing about the Zone Click Boys. The Zone 6 Click Boys. They were much harder than even where he started. Yes. And when he rolled with them, they were much more vicious. And he says, I quickly adopted the attitude of my new crew. I accumulated enemies fast. My prey was my own hood. Even my closest friends from Sun Valley started distancing themselves after I aligned myself with the Zone 6 clique. And those were not some soft guys. They were super street too, but they didn't condone robbing and tricking people out of their work. More than hustlers, they were robbers who targeted hustlers. They were robbing people for their stash. They wouldn't think twice about taking someone's money on consignment. We were taking up to $100,000 just saying fuck it and driving off with no intention of paying anyone back. Finessing people out of their money came naturally because it was like in his genes. Like he'd watched his dad do it so often that it honestly just kind of happened. He became really slimy. No one wanted to associate with him. None of his friends that he came up with, no one trusted him anymore. His family distanced themselves from him. There was a time where you're like, I had to sell drugs to make money. Fine. But you didn't have to fuck over your own neighbors. His own family. So he started using Alabama as like a place to sell because he said he could make more money. There was less competition there because there's so much drugs in Atlanta. It's like a cutthroat market. So you go to a smaller market and it's easier. And his family was so mad at him because they were like, don't get your cousins involved in the drug game. He tells a story about one time he went with his cousin and they started beef with the local drug dealers those drug dealers burnt down his cousin's house they ran for a motel they hid out in the motel for like a week and then all their stash was gone gucci was sure it was an inside job that like one of the housekeepers from the motel had stolen from them so he had his cousin go and confront them they called the police so his cousin ends up getting arrested and his house got burnt down his mom had stopped talking to him basically after the first time he got arrested she said you're not allowed in this house again 
His whole family in Alabama dreaded seeing him come. They're like, you're not welcome here either. His own friends from home. This is kind of when it took a turn into gray area. And I said, Gucci, you're not doing great. He's in his early to mid-20s here. Another bad thing happens at this time. Like we said, he wasn't that into doing drugs. He eventually starts smoking a good amount of weed just because a hot girl wanted to. And then he was like, oh, this is actually really nice. There's also this drug that's very popular in Atlanta called Lean, which is a drink made from prescription cough syrup and soda made popular in the 90s by DJ Screw. And it's known for being made with Sprite, but you can use anything for the soda. He tries Lean for the first time and gets absolutely wrecked. Get fucks him up for days. He's like hallucinating and becoming paranoid. He ends up in the hospital because he's so out of it. He thinks somebody drugged him. He drugged him. He's like, who put something in my drink? You put codeine in your drink. When he first found it in Alabama, they called it grits because it was so thick and they would drink it straight. The first time he saw it mixed with Sprite was in Savannah. And part of the appeal to him was that it wasn't popular in Atlanta yet. And he liked that because he wasn't doing a ton of drugs. He liked doing the one thing that nobody else in Atlanta really knew about. This just makes everything worse because he's paranoid. He's angry. This drug does not agree with him. Writing from the future, he's like, the rest of my time, doctors were like, listen, do whatever drugs you want. Please stop taking lean. It's making you fat. (laughs) It's making you paranoid. Most people don't have trips four days after the fact. This is not the drug for you, but he liked it. So he has basically burnt every bridge with his family. He's now discovered this drug that makes him even more paranoid, angry, violent, and difficult to work with. Things are just going on a downward spiral. He's hanging out with harder people. He's still making his music. He really is becoming a guy you would not want to know. He becomes friends with this guy, Do Dirty, who runs the drug scene in Savannah, but also does music on the side. And they become really good friends. And Do Dirty takes him under his wing and really helps him. He, like, fronts him $7,500 at one point. He robs Do Dirty's nephew and steals, like, $30,000 from him. And then he has to, like, go on the run for a while. And when he comes back, it turns out Do Dirty had paid off the bounty on Gucci's head for him so that he could come home and be free. That's how good of a friend Do Dirty was to Gucci. And, like, Gucci had fucked that guy over so bad. He says, I put D in this terrible situation by robbing his nephew. Why would I do that? He doesn't understand his own actions. It's this interesting thing to read. I really fell for it with Anthony Kiedis and I fell for it a fucking again with Gucci where as soon as they like show remorse for their actions, I'm just like, I forgive you. I mean, if Do Dirty could forgive him, I guess you could forgive him. Back music wise, this other crew made this song called White Tea that blew up, them franchise boys. And so him and his crew create a grittier version called Black Tea. Gucci happens to have the first verse on this song. And so the way the radio picks it up, it ends up getting this reputation as Black Tea by Gucci Mane. Even though it's not really by Gucci Mane, it's by this whole group. They all have a verse on it. And the group gets mad. You know, it's funny. Even in this book, he doesn't name who else was on the song, really. He just says, me and a couple of the guys from Straight Drop. And I'm like, okay, well, who? Gucci? Who? Who? They get so mad at him. They end up putting out a music video to the song where they just put someone else on it with a bandana over their face to do Gucci's verse. They're like, we're just going to have a figurehead playing you in this music video because fuck off. But what he does is he also takes the song, remixes it, puts Killer Mike on it, which is like a crazy name drop, and a couple other people and is and just puts out the Black Tea yeah. remix. So he's really abandoning people, burning bridges left and right. Around the same time, he also is introduced to another up-and-coming rapper named Young Jeezy. Shoddy Red puts them in touch and thinks that they would work well together. They meet. They end up making some music with Zaytoven, and they make a song called So Icy, which was pretty much his first real breakthrough 
hit. I mean, I guess it didn't break through the mainstream, but it lit the neighborhood on fire. So to have So Icy and Black Tea out there, he was becoming a name locally. Suddenly, everyone wanted a piece of Gucci Mane. My buzz in Atlanta blew the roof off. So here is basically what happened between Jeezy and Gucci. When So Icy took off, both Jeezy and Gucci were getting major label inquiries. Jeezy signed with Def Jam first. Gucci is ever the businessman. He was like still weighing his options. But because Jeezy signed first, Def Jam wanted that song on his next album. It was his leading single. They offered Gucci $100,000. Gucci says no. He just has no interest in giving anybody that song. I think he saw its long-term success being worth more than $100,000. I think he also just didn't want to not have the rights to that song. I mean, it was his first true singles. It wasn't until I declined Def Jam that things started to turn sour. Jeezy and I were never friends, but during the rise of So Icy, we would occasionally hit the clubs to perform the record. When I turned down Def Jam's offer, those joint performances stopped. Word was it was because Jeezy had a problem with me. Gucci never knows why anybody's mad at him, and yet Gucci is very quick to cut you out of his life. The problem is it started there with Jeezy, and then it blew up, and because Jeezy was already signed with Def Jam, he had more what Gucci would call dick writers, and they all seemed to fall in line out of fear of going against him, so it was decided that it was fuck Gucci. My reputation in the city went from a rising star to a one-hit wonder. While Jeezy had signed with Def Jam, Gucci was also checking out the offers, He also, I want to point out, had no interest in going with a major label. He was really interested in staying independent. He didn't like the financial structure at major labels. He gets a couple offers. He's very suspicious of almost everybody, which I respect. I understand that historically a lot of black musicians have been totally fucked over and it was really important to Gucci to not get fucked over. He ends up meeting this guy, Jacob. And I just want to read this chapter because this is one of those insights into a person who you're like, well, that's a memoir I would read. I'm just going to read the one paragraph about him. Jacob was the son of Dwight York, also known as Malachi York, the founder of the infamous Nuobian Nation, a cult religious group that built a compound in Putnam County, Georgia. I'd heard of Malachi, who had recently pleaded guilty to 116 counts of child molestation, but I wasn't familiar with Jacob. It turns out he had been instrumental in brokering the careers of Notorious B.I.G., Lil' Kim, Cameron, Pastor Troy, and a bunch of other artists. What a life. Imagine your dad's in jail for creating a cult and you're out there knowing Biggie and Lil' Kim. Pretty cool. This guy, Jacob, ultimately introduces Gucci to... Big Cat Records. There's also a guy, Big Cat, and he has an independent label, Big Cat Records. And this is the one he decides to go with, and he trusts them. So together they put out his first real album called Trap House, and it's doing really well. It's getting a ton of hype all over Atlanta. Unfortunately, the Jeezy beef is getting worse. What happens? From what we can put together, because he really does not include a lot of details about what happened here in the book. This part has to be brief. There are some things I can never really talk about. So from what we can gather, he went to a strip club trying to get his songs played. He met up with a stripper who was like, let's go back to my house. He went back to her house with her and there were people there waiting to attack him. One of those people died. He is promoting his album that's doing well, Trap House. He's in New York City on BET. And he says, there is no good time to find out you're wanted for murder. But learning like that right there on the set of Rap City fucked me up. Yeah, but my question is like, did he know he did murder? I feel like a lot of times in this book, we are with him on his journey as he finds out he's wanted for crimes. 
And I'm like, but we weren't there when you did the crimes. What <laughs> happened? Maybe he just like threw a couple shots into the air and later found out one of them had hit well. I will say this murder brings about one of the funniest lines in the whole book, which is they're talking about having to go back to Atlanta now. They don't want to take a plane because they don't want a scene in the airport. So they decide to drive back to Atlanta. That was a long, quiet drive. First, we stopped in New Jersey to pick up weed and get White Castle burgers. That was my first time eating White Castle. Then we headed home. I wonder if it left like a bad taste in his mouth about White Castle. I feel like if my first White Castle experience was me about to endure like a 16-hour drive to go to jail, I'd be like, this burger doesn't taste so good. (laughs) He also says, I was smoking like a chimney the whole ride. We were burning so much that we had to find more by the time we reached Washington, D.C. We also made it a point to stop at a few strip clubs on the way and fuck some hoes too. At the end of the day, he does not go to jail for long. He goes to jail for five days before he gets bailed out, at which point he's kind of told by the jury that he's going to be able to get off. They're like, there's no way for us to prove it wasn't self-defense. So he feels very calm. He is now back on the road promoting and touring his album. There's still a lot of beef surrounding him. There's the Jeezy beef. There's the long history of him fleecing the fuck out of his friends and getting into a lot of trouble beefs. And at one point, he is in Miami. So this is right after he gets out of jail on bail. He's in Miami. He gets out of the car for a performance and everyone standing outside the club, the bouncers, valet, parking attendants, patrons, turned to him with automatic weapons drawn. Every single one of them, it turns out, was the feds. And they'd gotten death threats and they like came to take him into protective custody. The problem is though that once they took him into protective custody, it turned out that he had a gun on him and Since he was on probation, he was not allowed to have a gun. He ends up going to jail anyway, saved from his own death threat, straight into the clink. He spends six months in jail and he comes home December 2006. I also want to point out that during this time when he spent a couple months in jail, he was reflecting more on the GZ beef. And he's like, I think he might have actually been mad at me before we ever even made So Icy. And I think it's so funny to be like in jail being like, what is his issue with me? He comes out and the first thing he does is go to Big Cat and say, where's the money from Trap House? He's like, where's the money from Trap House that I earned? Where's the money that you owe me that I'd given you before I went to jail? There was a lot of things going on where he was like, there should be more here. I learned a lot of my time working with Cat about what it took to put out a successful independent album, about publishing sheets, about accounting. Cat is someone I credit for making me a better businessman. But all that shit he taught me was about to bite him in the ass. I wanted to see the QuickBook spreadsheets. I wanted to see the receipts. I needed a detailed explanation of the financials. He's already suspicious of Cat, And then basically he wants to create a charity for his community service times. He's been assigned a lot of hours of community service. And so he's going to just start a charity instead of just doing charity work. So he gets hooked up with this woman named Deborah Antony. She was in social services, but had recently worked with a few well-known recording artists on setting up their foundations in different charity ventures. She basically comes up to him and is like, hey, if you're suspicious of these guys, you should know they do not have your best interests at heart. My departure from Big Cat would trigger my return to the streets. This would become a trend throughout the course of my career. Whenever the music wasn't going right, I would fall back into the streets. Maybe it was a coping mechanism. Going back to something I knew I'd find success in when I wasn't experiencing it elsewhere. Whatever it was, it was a habit that went on for much longer than you'd think. Right. But then Deb hunts him down and finds him at the trap house and is like, you have got to get back into music. Whatever you're doing right now is so fucking stupid. You're talented. You have a lot going for you. Stop it. He goes with Deb to basically get a new deal. And she becomes kind of his manager. She doesn't know a lot about business, but she has like a motherly warmth that he really likes. And I think actually a lot of rappers like because she goes on to have a business in the rap world. She ends up working with Nicki Minaj for a while. Names you've heard of. Anyway, 
Todd Moskowitz, who was with Asylum, which is a subdivision of Atlantic Records, was really interested in him before he signed with Big Cat. And he ends up striking up conversations with Todd again and going with Asylum slash Atlantic Records. He gets his own imprint called So Icy there. There's a really interesting Scott Storch story at this point, which I want to get into because Scott Storch is somebody, if you don't know him, you're going to see him everywhere now. He's behind all of the huge hits of the 2000s. He dated every famous person. He's one of the goofiest looking men you've ever seen. He looks like a balloon. That exploded. <laughs> that was like filled with wet cement and exploded. He looks like a lead zeppelin. He does look like a zeppeli. Made out of melted pencil lead. <laughs> he also famously blew through a half a billion dollar fortune on drugs and partying. We did a full episode about him on a podcast called Dunzo with Troy McGeady, who has also joined us on the Patreon before. You guys should go listen to that. He goes to the Scott Storch party. It's in Miami. He has a yacht, blah, 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 blah. But he goes up and Scott goes, this is the guy I was telling you about. The guy who everybody don't like. You know, the one with the murder charge. My jaw almost hit the floor. This was not the way I wanted to be introduced. I gave Scotty a look, hoping he'd realize his mistake and change the subject, but it kept going. I looked over at my girl and she looked equally taken aback which let me know that I wasn't tripping over nothing. That was my cue to get out of there. That's a clear move to think that something crazy is happening, but then be like, is that? Me and Gucci were both hotheads. So I have to be like, this is mean, right? I think for a murder to hate being called a murderer so much is so cute. I think I'm an asshole apologist. <laughs> Every time we read a man's memoir, anytime there's any ounce of self-analysis and growth, I'm just like, but he's trying his best. And I don't think it's misogyny. I think it's just that I expect so much from women because women are smart and funny and cool and better than men. So when men do like anything right, I'm just like, I'm so proud of you. You think it's so great that he knows being a murderer is bad. For a woman, I'd be like, I can't believe you murdered. But for a man, I'm like, you did murder, but you know it was wrong and you said sorry. So at this point, his song Freaky Girl blows up. This is one of his biggest to date crossover hits. The problem, though, is it's a song off of his last album and it's still owned by Big Cat, who will not sell it to Atlantic. Meanwhile, he puts out Back to the Trap House with Atlantic and it does not do well. So this is his first record with Atlantic, his first major label release. He takes medium ownership over the fact that this album doesn't do well. He says working with a major label, they had a lot of vision for him and it didn't quite match up with what he wanted to do. And so in that clashing, we see this a lot, honestly, with artists putting out a compromised album doesn't work ever. But with Gucci, I throw a little bit of question into the ring because Gucci has never been one to fold to anyone else's vision besides his own. And I don't think he's the type of person to be intimidated by a major label. I think he might have just dropped the ball on this one. The album isn't doing well, but he's getting more and more famous. Freaky Girl is blowing up. He is signed to a major label and he's starting to become a real druggie. He's on lean all the time, partying, indulging in what comes with fame. Yeah, and he's also meeting a lot of other artists and he's starting to put out music like crazy. So he discovers the mixtape around this time. He says, because Back to the Trap House didn't do well, all of a sudden he has this realization via Lil Wayne. Lil Wayne is huge on mixtapes and he realizes... My disappointment of Back to the Trap House already had me feeling like I had something to prove, so I made up my mind. I would flood the streets with music, too. I hit up every DJ I knew and told them I wanted to do a mixtape with them. 
and he just starts shooting out mixtapes. He was in the studio constantly, and this is when he starts freestyling like crazy. He goes, I became a machine. I would record six or seven songs in a day easily. His rates are huge. He's making a ton of money performing. He's still making a lot of money from the label and with other projects and through these mixtapes. So he's doing a fuck ton of drugs. And he would go on these benders. He would go to Vegas and party like crazy and then also record the whole time. With the rise comes the fall. This begins four consecutive years of him spending every fall in jail. This starts this pattern of when he goes up, he's in jail, he loses it, he comes out, he has something to prove, he goes back to jail, he loses it. It's just like one step forward, one step back. So the first time he goes to jail in 2008 fall, he gets pulled over or something and they decide that the charity he had started with Deb did not count as actually doing community service. So now he's in violation of his parole again and he's back in jail. When he's in jail, Deb, who had signed his childhood good friend OJ to Juice Man, who he had known truly since sixth grade, They had done a song together. It got picked up. And basically, they went from making it a Gucci song with a feature by OJ to an OJ song with a feature by Gucci. And this put OJ on the map, and it really blew him up. However, when he came out, he was so mad about it that he cut off OJ and Deb. He also is working at this point with Deb's son, who you may have heard of. His name is Waka Flocka Flame. So he had known Waka for years because it was Deb's son and Waka had always become like his right-hand man. But at this point, when he breaks off with Deb, he starts his own production and he calls it 1017 Brick Squad. And the first person he signs is Waka right as he's cutting Deb. He gets straight to work on the state versus Roderick Davis and is honestly riding high. All of the mixtapes, they work. People love him. He's never been worth more. Now he has a true vision. Think about how often he's been recording. He knows the state versus Roderick Davis is going to be huge. He starts working on a song called Wasted. I mean, this is his businessman and his writing skills at work here. He reaches out to Fat Boy and he says, what do you think about doing a song called Wasted? And Fat Boy says, Wasted? Hmm, isn't that something white people say? Exactly. I always found it funny when white people said they were getting wasted instead of drunk or fucked up or whatever term the black folks used. Fat Boy saw the vision immediately and he ran with it. If we could take this suburban white slang and flip it and make it hood, that could be big. Then White America would pick it up and it'd bounce back in suburbia and we'd make this phrase hot again. So he's manipulating the white kids, which is the absolute number one way to make money in rap music. (laughs) And putting out a fuck ton of music still. And he's also becoming the go-to feature guy. After his fallout with Jeezy, he had gotten a little bit blackballed from doing other features. He also wasn't on a major label. He had also, at this point, pissed off Death Jam. He had pissed off T.I. He had a lot of enemies. He had a lot of shit going on. But he feels that Jeezy had blackballed him. But once he gets in there, he does one or two features that end up really blowing up. And then he's the feature guy. Everyone's obsessed with him. He even does obsessed with Mariah Carey. He's on Trey Songs, Marion, Jamie Foxx, everything. His rate is enormous for performances. He's doing all these features. He's making easily $90,000 a night. He says he'll make like 50K to do some radio stations performance and then do $40,000 to the after party. So then he's performing like crazy, making money like crazy, partying like crazy and recording like crazy, which is so interesting because you're like, how the hell could he have the time? And it's because he was doing them essentially all at once. He says that he wasn't recording before or after a bender, he would just be on a bender, have these makeshift studios there with him. He would record in the middle and then just go back to partying in Vegas. So the song Lemonade, which is his 
breakthrough hit, I would say, was recorded in the middle of a Vegas bender. So he's recording it with Bangladesh and he completely forgets about it because he made it essentially blacked out. And then Bangladesh sends it back to him with his niece on the hook. And it's like, what do you think about this? And he's like, oh my God, who's it's very good. (laughs) Here's the problem though. Halfway into making the state versus Roderick Davis, I violated my probation. I pissed dirty and left town without a permit. There were technicalities that triggered the violation, but really I was behaving badly all around. Of course, at that time, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I was just having a lot of fun spending this money. You ever see the movie Get Him to the Greek? It was something like that. His team gets them together and they're like, look, you fucked up. The best thing you could do right now is go to rehab. If you go to rehab and then show up and you're clean, they're probably not going to get so mad at you. He's hesitant, but his CEO at Atlantic is like, I will out of my own money pay half of your rehab fees just to get you to go. So he ends up going and he does 90 days in rehab. He really admits that he was not doing the work and he had no interest in sobriety. It was a thousand percent a move to get less jail time. They're pretty loose with him. He's like breaking out in the middle of the night to keep recording. He at one point asks if he can leave to perform at the BET Awards. They let him do it. He's on a high. He feels that everything's about to happen and he knows that he's about to release the state versus Roderick and he's like, it's all about to happen for me. Yeah, there's this insane rush because he has to get the state versus Roderick Davis locked and done by the time his rehab stint ends because they think, you know, you might end up in jail for who knows how long. And so we need that album locked. One of the things that happens during this rehab time when he's out and about is he goes into Houston's the steakhouse. Houston's is what we call it in New York. Houston's is what I call it because I've never heard of it. He goes in and who does he see but Jeezy. Basically him and Jeezy get to talking and Jeezy's just like look I think we should get the young boys to chill. Ain't nobody gonna get hurt but one of them. So what's happened here is very similarly to what happened with Noel and Liam Gallagher of Oasis is that their beef is obviously still important in their own hearts, but it's really trickled down to the younger generation. So their protégés are beefing with each other massively and it's getting very dangerous. He goes, he had a point. I was in rehab and Jeezy wasn't in the streets anymore. If anyone was going to get hurt, it was going to be one of them. So they basically have this agreement and they're like, let's just squash it. When you get out of rehab, let's do features on each other's songs. Let's release something together. Like, let's make this huge. Everybody's going to freak out when they find out we're buddies again. What happens though? The day that Gucci gets out of rehab, he goes straight to jail. They lock him up immediately. And when he's in there, Jeezy just goes ahead with all the songs that they had agreed to do together not a word of working with Gucci. So that's dead. Seems like it's over in Gucci's heart, but it's not over to the fans and to the people who are on each person's side. The state versus Roderick Davis was the success we'd hoped for. I'd finally hit a sweet spot. The problem though is he is in jail when it comes out. And this is when all those songs come out. Lemonade, Heavy, I Think I Love Her, Photoshoot, Bingo, Wasted, Worst Enemy. It is critically acclaimed. Everybody loves it. One thing that he didn't plan for, his newfound popularity with white hipster kids. Todd Moskowitz told him he had this alternative fan base because Lemonade had connected with them and it was getting remixed by EDM DJs around the world. I will say, I thought that I just had like good taste in music. And then when I found out that Lemonade just like happened to be a crossover hit with like wannabe white hipster freaks, I was like, damn, caught me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So he goes to jail for six months and he comes out May 12th, 2010. So he comes out and does this whole statement about how sorry he is and how he's going to change and he's going to be sober now. And he just hopes everybody in the world is a better person like he is now. And he cannot wait to get back to making more music. And then once again, we have his aside of what he was really thinking. He says, the humble talk was for the lawyers, the cameras, Todd, whomever. In reality, I was feeling myself more than ever. I was keenly aware of how my career and the artists signed to me had grown stronger during my time away. 
a newfound respect and appreciation for the law. Give me a break. I was the hottest thing smoking. No one could tell me shit anymore. During his time locked up, though, he did fall in love with a certain video vixen named Keisha Dior. So obviously he hires her right away to come to a video with him. And sure enough, she's as beautiful as he thought in real life. And he falls in love with her and she turns him down. But finally, he's like, for business purposes, could we go get dinner? Yeah, so they go get dinner and he is so smitten. He has this line... Keisha and I went to dinner at the Intercontinental Hotel in Buckhead. We were still wearing our all-white matching outfits from the shoot. We ordered the same thing, salmon with mashed potatoes. That's that is love. such a simp line, and I love him. So he's out of jail now. The State versus Roderick had been huge. They're like, let's get to work on the next album. So he starts on George's Most Wanted, The Appeal. I had to go even bigger with this album. I wanted to work with Swizz Beats. Done. I wanted to work with White Clef Jean. Not a problem. I wanted to work with Pharrell. Let's fly to California. Everything I wanted, Warner Brothers would accommodate. I was the priority. He's also obviously feeling himself massively in literally every way. This is when he decks himself out in brand new chains. He gets his Bart Simpson chain, which becomes iconic, but then he's not allowed to wear it in videos because he doesn't own the intellectual property to the Simpsons. So he gets the ice cream cone chain that becomes very iconic. But the problem is the first song off of The Appeal gets leaked. It's called Gucci Time and it is panned. People don't like it and the critics are like, God, this is so derivative. And he goes, working with all those big producers, he now says he thinks sent him back because instead of creating the next sound they were chasing when it already succeeded and everybody said it sounded like other people's songs like he was just trying to turn out a hit he does not handle rejection well he spiraled he says the appeal was finished and turned into warner bros which we forgot to mention atlantic had folded and so now he got absorbed to warner brothers the appeal was finished and turned into warner brothers but the album's release was still a couple months away and there was work to be done to promote it, but I started to withdraw from that work. I started bailing on photo shoots and interviews. A fan would ask me for an autograph and I would tell them to step off. Todd and I were still talking, but I became disengaged. Keisha and I broke up. Worst of all, I started drinking lean again heavily. He went to rehab for three months. He was sober for his time in rehab. Then he went to jail for six months and he was sober there because you have to be. Then he was sober for three months out of jail. And then he started doing drugs again while he was working on the appeal. And then he started heavily drinking lean again as the appeal started to be a not successful follow-up to the state versus Roderick Davis. Or when he started to think it wasn't going to be successful. And he completely self-sabotages and spirals. Looking back, I realized it was so unnecessary. The response to Gucci time wasn't as bad as I made it out to be. There was no reason the appeal couldn't have been a success. I felt good about that album. Really good. As far as the big picture, I was still a star, but I lost sight of the big picture. I couldn't see it. I was in too dark a place. So at this point, he just really feels like everyone's forgotten about him. No one cares and no one's interested in his career. This is how these downward spirals my life always went. Some stressful situation would arise and I would turn to drugs to cope. Abusing the lean and weed and pills would end up with me sleeping and eating poorly. It would compromise my whole health and then I wouldn't be on point to handle the original stressful situation right. I'd compound bad choices. This would lead to more problems, more stress, and more drugs. A cycle with no ends. As you can guess, he starts spiraling and acting worse and worse. He has this situation with the VMAs where they're not going to let him in. He feels really humiliated and fucked over. He throws $10,000 worth of cash at like the paparazzi. He's acting really erratic. He goes to Miami. He spends $150 in cash to just like hole up and do drugs. He says he's acting like a rock star. I mean, he is. In the books that we've read about rock stars, I feel like rappers abuse uppers and rock stars abuse opiates and opiates make you reclusive the way that he holds up it's very Nikki six it's very anthony kiedis the way he like creates a drug nest and 
doesn't leave it. He just has everything brought to him and he becomes paranoid and afraid of the world around him. It's getting so bad that his team actually tricks him into an intervention. They get him into a rehab, but after a week he bails. He's, again, kind of getting paranoid from all the drugs. And so he decides that one of his auto shop guys, a person on his team that he's close with has been stealing from him. So he shows up and he just like starts trying to beat the shit out of this guy. He goes, I was irate and growing angrier by the minute, barking at this dude for stealing from me, an accusation that in reality held little water, except I wasn't living in reality. I was in a world all on my own, one in which everyone in my orbit was plotting against me. So of course, officers show up, demand he calms down. He gets all of these charges and he beats them basically with a plea of mental incompetency that was warranted. I'd lost my damn mind. But they don't believe him. The judge is like mental incompetency. Okay, what a beautiful little excuse. So he's out on bail. And this is when he's truly mentally spiraling. He walks into a tattoo shop and he's like, I'm pretty covered in tattoos, but I've got some space here on this cheek. What do you think would look good? You guys know that I love to get a stupid tattoo. I love to grab a tattoo on a whim. I'm such a fan of the behavior. But I do think face tattoos should have a little bit more thought. This is where he like wins you over with the self-reflection. This is where the ghost writer's therapy really comes through. It could be his therapy, Claire. You don't know. Mm. With all that I'd been through of late, I'd never felt more alienated. I was an outcast, a rebel, a weirdo. More than anything, I was tired. Tired of running away from my reputation. Tired of trying to convince people that I wasn't a bad person. I wanted to embrace being the villain. I wanted to broadcast that I didn't give a fuck what anyone said or thought about me. So... He gets the ice cream cone tattooed on his face. And it has little lightning bolts and it says, brr. Weirdly enough, it like had a positive effect. He was expecting to walk into Patrick Studios and have everyone be like, dude, what the fuck did you do? He did not expect that the news would pick it up, that people across the world Mm -hmm. would be worried about him for getting this tattoo on his face. And he says, people were talking a lot of shit, but the crazy thing is the response had a positive effect on me. It kind of woke me up. I'd gotten so down on myself that I'd completely lost sight of how many people still cared about what I was up to. I was still a big deal in this industry. He starts to sort of snap out of the the funk he'd been in since the appeal came out. So he's putting out mixtapes. He's putting out like dark, moody, sad mixtapes. He does The Return of Mr. Zone 6, which he calls... Darker was different, but it was still good music. But the thing is, he's still like fucked up all the time. And then comes just this litany of assaults. Some he remembers, some he doesn't remember. There's this situation with a woman where he claims that she got into his car when she wasn't going to hook up with him. He was like, all right, get out of the car. And she was like, no, drive me to my job in Buckhead. And he's like, that's too far. I'll drop you off at the bus or back where I found you. When she got out, she got a lawyer and said that he kicked her out of the car while it was moving. She wanted $15,000. Instead, he took her to court and ended up having to pay her $60,000 and lawyer's fees. Also, he gets in trouble for, they say he beat a veteran up. He's like, I don't remember that. They're like, do you remember a pool stick? And then he goes, oh, yes, I did hit somebody with a pool stick. Long story short. He's in jail again for one month. And while he's in jail for a month, two chains and future start popping off. And he's like, every time I go away, the scene starts changing. But Mike Will Made It, a producer he'd been working on during his heavy mixtape phase, has really become an up-and-coming producer. He's working with two chains. He's working with future. Mike Will Made It is a moniker that comes from a Gucci ad lib. Mike Will Made It, Gucci Mane Slayed It. I love that. He had stopped working with Mike Will because Deb and him had a problem. But once he had gotten rid of Deb, they start working together and... It is magic in the studio. He says that Mike Will is the only person who can say anything to him. He's like, when I work with Zaytoven, anything I do, Zaytoven's like, that's amazing. Mike Will is the only person who will be like, get back in there. Those ad libs could be better. Redo it. Try it again. But he's like, he's such a perfectionist that he does make incredible music. I mean, I agree. 
So three weeks of the day of this time getting out of jail, he puts out Free Bricks. Free Bricks blows up. It's Gucci and Mike Will. And then he's back in jail for a little bit. So when he gets out this time, Free Bricks has blown up. He hasn't lost all of his hype this time. In fact, things have gotten stronger. So his name has started to be this cultural touchstone of Free Gucci. Yes. So people all over the music scene are being like, Free Gucci. People are singing songs called Free Gucci. He comes out to the biggest hype he's ever had, and he wants to capitalize on it. He sees how big Future's blown up. He doesn't want to lose anything. He decides to start getting involved in bringing up young talent. He said he's always had a talent for being a sort of A&R guy. He wants to be there discovering young talent. At the same time, he gets a call from one Mariah Carey. I don't know if you remember her from earlier. She calls and is like, hey, my friend Harmony Corinne is making this movie and they want you to be in it. It's called Spring Breakers. He ends up having a movie job. He's working on music more than ever. He's really inspired to be back in the studio and spending a fuck ton of time there. He also decides at this point, it's a better financial decision to just open his own studio. He wants to be fostering young talent. He's spending a fuck ton of time in the studio. So he's like, I'll just have a studio. So he opens up this space called the Brick Factory. And I do love this. And the way that Ashley is such an asshole apologist, if they at all pretend to be better now, I love somebody who just wants a little creative commune, which is what he calls it. He says, I wanted my studio to be a place where artists had the freedom to experiment, a place to take chances, where people could be themselves, but also find themselves as rappers or producers. For me, this was a much deeper level of involvement. I'd set up an incubator of talent. He has 1017 Brick Squad, and now he has the Brick Factory, and it becomes the hangout. He creates three studios. He wants to build two more. Anybody with an N can come and basically just lay down a track and see what happens. And he starts signing people to this label. So at this time, Waka blows up. He signs Young Thug, Young Dolph, Migos, and Pee Wee. And things are going great. He's like having the time of his life. He's putting out music. But then what always happens? He goes back to jail. And the problem is, for some reason, they think he's going to go back forever. The thing with Gucci is that he has so many probations, so many arrests racked up, that every time he goes in, nobody knows when he will come out. So he goes in for like a couple weeks, but at this time, all of those people had blown up. Like Migos was blowing up. Young Thug was blowing up. Waka was blowing up. There was rumors that everybody was defecting. And part of him is like, I understand. But also part of him is like, I cannot let this happen. So luckily he gets out in three weeks. He's like, I cannot deal with all the defectors right now. What I have to make sure I do is solidify my name in the music scene. So he's coming out of jail on house arrest, but he puts down the studio as his address. So he's on house arrest at the studio. And he has an apartment there. There's a workout room. But what happens is it kind of backfires because he built the studio in Zone 6. It is where he used to hang out, where the people from the beginning of the podcast that were like robbing their own neighbors. Everyone is starting to hang out. And he says it becomes less and less a musician's hangout and more just like a dangerous place where people are like storing their guns and harboring feuds. And then because he has so many feuds, he's also building up his own little artillery because he's worried about his own safety constantly. He's in the middle of zone six where he has a fuck ton of beefs. Over time, the Brick Factory vibe had changed. It had become a hangout more than a place of creation and business. Me and the artists I was working with were a fraction of the bodies there. Everyone's crew had made it a home base too. The fact that the Brick Factory was in the middle of my old neighborhood made things more problematic. Other people's altercations had and issues inadvertently became mine, and I couldn't leave. It was dangerous. And at this point, his drug use is still really fucking bad. He was drinking so much lean that when he was shooting Spring Breakers, he would just fall asleep. He said there was one point where he was doing a sex scene that famous sex scene in the movie where he tells that girl that she's playing Mozart on his dick. He woke up to say that line. Now he says he's spending $1,000 a day on lean. He's spending $400 on 
weed a day. And he goes, and that's just the basics. Anything else I came across, Percocets, Xanax bars, Molly's, whatever, it would all get tossed into the mix too. And so this move, this goal to solidify himself in the music industry by holding up in the studio really backfires because he is a fucking mess locked in the studio like this. He says it's become a really scary, unpleasant place. And so people are just leaving anyway. He and Waka have an enormous falling out, their biggest so far, and it all happens over Twitter. Yeah. And so he just gets into this like rampage of tweeting mean things at people. He wants to get out of his deal with Atlantic. They're like, look, we're not making revisions to your deal. Take it or leave it. So he tweets out, Julian Craig, suck my dick. And then, of course, he gets dropped from the label. So now he's off of a label. He's losing his mind. His lawyer keeps calling him and being like, you have to stop tweeting violent things at people because it's not good for your case. He now is like, do you mean that or are you just my enemy too? So he decides he's going to walk to his lawyer's office with a gun to tell him that he's not his lawyer anymore. He gets there. An altercation happens. The police get called. The police are like, hey, is that Gucci's gun? And Gucci's like, that's not my gun. And the lawyer's like, I don't know that that's Gucci's gun. Gucci was like, wow, that's a good lawyer. So he keeps the lawyer. The lawyer ends up keeping his job on this day. Basically, his days were numbered. He's out on bail once again, but he's still spiraling. He goes, I don't even remember the next couple of days, but apparently his friends were so concerned about him. He had been labeled as bipolar and off of his meds and just walking around with a gun. One of his friends called the police and was like, you have to come get him. I'm very nervous. And when the police says this to Gucci, Gucci goes, none of my friends would call the police. You must be an enemy dressed up faking being the police trying to kidnap me. So he fights off the police. They call up a bunch of people. They eventually have to sedate him medically. They get him into a medical prison where he proceeds to detox for three weeks. He loses 24 pounds in two weeks just shitting out. Because the lean made him so constipated. That he like shits out 25 pounds. From there, he gets sentenced. I mean, he was supposed to be sentenced to 30 years. Somehow his lawyer gets it down with a plea bargain to three and a half. They get two three and a half year sentences that he's allowed to serve concurrently. I mean, that's not bad. And it is in this jail that he does a lot of thinking. He gets really into self-help books from the jail library. He also gets really into working out. So the Gucci that we know now, that the abs Gucci is one that he found in jail. While he's in jail, he realizes everything he had on the outside and he's determined to get sober. He is sober in jail and he says he's going to stay sober forever. He talks a lot about realizing how much he loved Keisha who had his back, even though she didn't bail him out because she was so mad at him. She had his back the entire three years he was in jail. He has a son that really doesn't get mentioned, but he's like, I want to be a better dad to my son. He didn't know about his son until the son was 10 months old. Unlike a lot of the guys in this place, I was getting another chance. My last one, I couldn't drop the ball again. I needed to do more than pray. I needed to make better decisions. And you see him make those decisions when El Chapo breaks out of jail and he is so fucking stoked on it. He's like, I wrote a Chapo song. Chapo is my fucking guy. I'm obsessed with him. So I ran to the computer. I was going to do a verse over the phone. I was so excited to do a Chapo mixtape on the eve of his breakout. We had to move this quickly. And then I realized maybe glorifying someone escaping prison wouldn't help me get out of prison. He goes, my father used to say that if you keep looking back, you're going to trip going forward. That in life, sometimes you reach a fork in the road and you have to make a decision. Which direction will it be, left or right? To be firm in that decision, you can't keep looking back. You have to make peace with the past. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time for the wounds to heal. But I had time. Three years to think about it. The relationships that mattered most. The ones that have run their course. The mistakes I can't afford to make again. My strengths, my shortcomings, my limits. The way I've got to respond when times get tough again because tough times are a part of life. It's how you bounce back from those moments that make you who you are. So that's where the book ends. The book actually ends with him still in jail. Yes. And I'm very quick to believe someone's therapy, but I will say we checked his Instagram 
Keisha took him back, married him. They have a child together now. I don't think she's stupid. So it does seem like he's changed. Like, it does seem like he's really taken this shit to heart. If you just look at his body, it looks like he's stayed sober because clearly the drugs affected his body really negatively and he still looks like post-jail Gucci right now. Like, he's yeah, he keeping good. up the health. You think he got a chin job, too. Yeah, and fake teeth, obviously, but I don't think the fake teeth would have done enough to give him a jawline. I think this is a real transformation. A tale of a man coming into his own and taking responsibility for his actions, I hope. It's a smart person who did end up on top and he like had to fight to get there. And to stay there because he kept falling back down. Ashley. Yeah, Claire. What did you think of the book? I really liked it. I like Gucci. What do you think? I really liked it. It didn't come across a ton in our telling, but I think the ghostwriter did an incredible job. I know that we said that up top. The voice of the book is really well done. And then it's also intertwined with it a lot of stories about how awful jail is. I mean, the facts about the Fulton County Jail, he gets put in a couple times. He talks about how it was built for 1,300 people. It now holds 3,300. What that does to the facilities and how inhumane it is. He really hits on all the inhumanities of prison. And I do personally think that the prison system is one of the greatest failings of this country. It's an enormous human rights violation. He doesn't hit you over the head with it in the book, but I do think in his story, he does stop to give you the background information that makes it like bigger than just his story. But it's also an interesting story. I'm rooting for him. He's not a perfect character. He seems really fun. Yeah. You want him to end up happy and you want him to end up on the right road. So good luck to Gucci. You guys. Okay. We have so much to get into on the Patreon. I have so much to say about the Paris Hilton wedding and her Peacock show. I want to write a thesis. I'm losing my mind. We're going to get into the contemporary drama of the world. We love you guys so much. We'll see you tomorrow, we hope. Yes. See you tomorrow night. And thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Thank you so much to OB199813. Thank you for being our guiding Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's a good guy, right? Thank you to Elise L4192. Thanks for giving me a new Elise on life. Thank you, Liz Warren 2020. I am sorry that that didn't work out. L-I-K-N-O. Do you know what? Yes. Thank you for this review. B-B-B-R-I. Thank you for buzzing like a busy bee. V-Q-Tick. Thank you for your hot take. Gonzo 501, thank you for not being Gonzo before you left a review. Lucky McSneeze, thank you for blessing us with this snot. Jordan 14, thank you for spelling it out perfectly. Tayshep 333, thank you for the triple luck. Colon 6BB, thank you for giving us this cute baby review. Moji No. Emoji, yes. Thank you for this review. Olivia Burr 95, thank you for living large. Fjin B38593, have a gin on me. Princess Darian, thank you for blessing us with your royalty. Jane Ladybug, thank you for bringing your beautiful buzzy bugness over here. TX4X4Haas, thank you for the 4x4 all around great review. Dusty1974, thank you for not dusting off before leaving this beautiful review. And that's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I adore you. Oh,